Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. Back to hashing out, everybody. As always, I'm your first host, Dr. Corey Petty. My trusty, trusty, trusty co-host, Colin Couchet. Say what's up, everybody, Colin. Can I be the first host? Not today. Maybe oh. one day. Oh man. Yeah. What's up, everybody, Colin? How's it going? <laughs> <laughs> and as always, we're bringing you great guests. Yeah, we're bringing you great guests today. We have uh, Andrew Polstra, director of research at Blockstream here to talk to us about all things signatures and uh, a couple other projects we have have, uh, quite a bit of interest in. So welcome to the show, Andrew. Why don't you um, quickly, for those that don't know you, give a quick introduction as to how you got started in the space and what you currently work on. Sure. Um, Yeah, thank you for having me on the show. Uh, As you said, my name is Andrew. I am currently the director of research at Blockstream. um, And I started in the Bitcoin space in, well, I first heard of Bitcoin in 2011. Some slash dot commenter was making some slash dot comment. It was was very wrong. And naturally, I had to go prove him wrong on the internet as as you do on (laughs) slash dot. That's how the internet works. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, the internet wouldn't work if people didn't do that. So it was important that I did that. Um, that led me to Bitcoin.org. That led me to IRC. And that led me to the Bitcoin Wizards Research Channel, where around 2013 or so, um, I started out more seriously. So Bitcoin Wizards um, is an IRC channel where it's a fairly low-volume channel, just full of basically independent researchers. Or not everybody's independent. There are people from universities. There are people from companies. Uh, back in 2013, it was very much like an open, like, it was just a bunch of random people downloading crypto papers from the ePrint archive and reading them and speculating on what, how they might apply to Bitcoin. Um, a big thing then, uh, in October of 2013, there was a paper, Snarks for C, that had just been published. This was the first paper that hinted that maybe these Snarks, these uh, compact zero-knowledge proofs might be practical. Um, so there was a lot of excitement on Bitcoin wizards there. Um, and so just by hanging out on IRC, um, I learned quite a bit about Bitcoin from the other people hanging out there. Greg Maxwell, Peter Todd, Mark Friedenbach, um, um, like Peter Wulla, um, just all, all the people that we know and love today were uh, hanging out there. And that's how I got into it, really. Um, about a year after that, um, a group of people on Bitcoin Wizards, uh, for the most part, people from Wizards decided to start a company called Blockstream. And uh, and I joined that. Initially, I was just doing kind of engineering work, almost like technical writing work. Um, not uh, I, like I, I helped write the our 2014 sidechains white paper, and uh, and then from there I transitioned into doing like real crypto kind of work. Um, so I showed up initially. I was just uh, contracting while I was working on my PhD, so I was doing some small stuff like that. Um, and when I stopped doing my PhD. In 2016, I dropped out because 
Blockstream was sending me to a lot more conferences and helping me publish a lot more papers than my PhD uh, was. Then, uh, then I joined Blockstream full time, um, and now I run the research department there. And uh, I guess that brings us to now. Yes, you're 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 a mathematician. I guess you self-identify as a mathematician. I would say your credentials back that up. Um, a common rule, uh, I just want to get this out of the way because I think it's important and uh, someone like you can t maybe explain why. Common rule in crypto, don't roll your own crypto. Why? That's a great, that's a great rule. So that dates back to probably the, the late 80s and 90s on Usenet on Psy.Crypt. So the reason for this rule is that historically, so Bitcoin's kind of kind of weird and new in that there's all these like signatures and zero knowledge proofs and, and all sorts of weird um, Pedersen equipments and like all sorts of crazy stuff flying around. Historically, um, although this is still relevant today, historically crypto meant like encryption. Um, and people would show up on Usenet and they would just like speculate wildly on like maybe the NSA has broken RSA or something like that. And they were going to come up with their own encryption scheme that was totally not broken. And they would do it by like just like piling together a whole bunch of random like XORs and ANDs. Well, ANDs are, are destructive, but they would like pile in XORs and additions and just invent a whole bunch of crazy mathematical operations that they thought would be impossible for anybody to undo. And of course, when you just pile together a whole bunch of random mathematical operations, the result is not going to be a secure encryption scheme. Like it, that's, that's kind of crazy to even think <laughs> that that would be the case, that you could think of a, literally a random equation and the result will be difficult to invert. But that's kind of the intuition that people have when they start working with cryptography, is they're like, this stuff needs to look super random, and if it looks really random and like, People can't even guess where, uh, where, um, like what algorithm was used, what equation was used. Then surely they can't undo it. And of course, in practice, that's just false. Um, similarly, people would like to come up with their own password hashing functions um, that couldn't be reversed. Um, people would sometimes like to like try to implement their own, um, like even they would take a real algorithm, uh, like AES or DES or whatever. Um, they try to implement them implement it themselves and as a result they would introduce like timing attacks or side channels or something like that um, yeah there's no so... way in hell i'd ever write my own library like I've, I've said that on a previous episode we just recently had and somebody's like yeah don't roll your own crypto but that to me was like a bigger term don't roll your own crypto and i think like iota doing ternary like you know cryptography <laughs> stuff like that that's what i think of when i hear that but i actually wouldn't do my own implementation because i can't prove that it's correct to a high enough degree of confidence because i don't know all those attack vectors yeah, exactly. Um, so this is, I mean, that, that's what the idiom means, basically, is that unless you're a professional cryptographer, um, and unless there's been like, so you need to be a professional cryptographer who is aware of these kind of attacks, and then your resulting code and, and needs to have many years of review from other professional cryptographers and experts in the space and just many eyes. And if you're inventing your own algorithm, like the IOTA people did, you probably need like over a decade of academic review of the algorithm before you can even think about worrying about the code. Um, so that's, that's where this idiom comes from. It's pretty, pretty old, but it definitely still applies today as we've seen in this space. Um, people are always trying to, to uh, roll their own crypto, um, invent new hash functions, invent all sorts of new things, um, and then just deploy it immediately as part of their cryptocurrency. And something, so it's fun to laugh at like IOTA for doing this with hash functions, but like obviously this is ridiculous. 
But I think something a lot of people don't appreciate is that an entire blockchain system is basically one giant crypto system. Um, and when you take a cryptocurrency and you try to like change the transaction structure and change um, the way that blocks are validated and change all sorts of aspects of this, you are actually kind of still rolling your own crypto. Um, and this is this can be just as dangerous. Um, and maybe let me give you an example in the, in the Bitcoin space of where we went wrong uh, doing this. Um, you bet your listeners may be familiar with something called transaction malleability. This used to be a really big deal before SegWit. Um, the idea here is that when you are creating a Bitcoin transaction, um, you choose some inputs, you choose some outputs, you make the transaction, and then you tack some signatures onto there. Um, there are two things that we call malleability. If third-party malleability is usually what people think about. You produce a transaction, somebody is able to tweak your signature somehow, or like add padding to your signature, or do something, and as a result, the transaction ID has changed. The TX ID has changed because we have changed the signature. But as long as the attacker does this in a way that doesn't invalidate the signature, then they um, then the transaction will still be valid and they can publish this. And this means that your wallet maybe creates a transaction with a known TX ID and publishes it to the network. And what gets into the blockchain is a transaction with a different TX ID, which might really confuse your wallet. It used to confuse a lot of wallet software in 2011 and 2012. But a more serious problem with this is that if your wallet is trying to spend outputs from the original transaction, well, in order to refer to an old transaction output, you need to use a TXID. And if that changes out from under you, then your new transaction just becomes invalid. And so as a result, you basically couldn't use, like you couldn't do things like Lightning Network, or it was extremely difficult to do things like Lightning Network, um, which depend on the ability to spend transactions that have not yet been buried deeply in the blockchain. Because basically if a transaction has not hit the chain, you can't have any assurance of what a TXID will be, so you can't refer back to it, so you can't spend its outputs. Um, and then even if somehow you manage to come up with a transaction structure that does not allow random third parties to tweak it to add padding and stuff, um, there's still this problem with what's called first-party malleability. And this, I would argue, is actually more of a problem um, in practice because it's very difficult to fix um, without, well, SegWit fixes it, and I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. But what first-party malleability is, suppose that you have some coins controlled by a multi-signature, you need multiple parties to sign it, then um, every time somebody adds their own signature to the transaction, that causes the TXID to change because adding the signature changes the serialization of the transaction. And this means that if you're writing a multi-signature wallet with different parties, you cannot possibly spend your change until it's been buried in the blockchain because you as an individual signer have no ability to control the TXID. And in fact, if you're not signing last, you can't even predict the TXID. Um, so, so you have to worry like, not only about random third parties changing your transaction, but all of your countersigners might be changing their signatures on you and changing the TXID. And so as a result, it's just, it was really difficult to do anything interesting with Bitcoin because as soon as you had more than one signer involved, you had this first-party malleability problem and you couldn't change transactions off of each other. So the fix for this, of course, is SegWit, segregated witness, um, where the witness data, which includes signatures like this, is simply moved out of the part of the transaction that goes into the TXID, into another part of the transaction. 
Um, and I should emphasize that the whole transaction is still like a full transaction. The witnesses are still part of the transaction. They need to be there for it to be valid. It's all committed in the block, all that good stuff. Because um, people worry sometimes. Um, they hear about segregated witness. They worry that we're like pulling the transactions apart or, or somehow removing stuff. Um, we're not. What we what SegWit changed was it made the signatures no longer contribute to the transaction ID. Separating that, that to what you're doing. Yeah, exactly. And so this means now with SegWit, you create a multi-signature wallet. You don't uh, multi-signature transaction. You don't care about what your other signers do. All they're going to do is add witnesses. And if they change any of the non-witness data, they'll invalidate your signature, so you don't have to worry about about it being a valid transaction. Um, so like as soon as you sign, you know the TXID and you know it's not going to change. So the uh, so to bring this way back to the conversation about rolling your own crypto, um, the reason that this happened was that Satoshi, in designing the Bitcoin transaction format, was thinking of um, was connecting transactions to each other by TXID, and he thought, well, I need a signature. Um, like some sort of digital signature, like ECDSA or whatever, um, to actually authorize these transactions. What Satoshi should have done, if he cared about the exact serialization of the signature or whether the signature was there, what Satoshi needed to use was something called a strong signature. Okay, and, th and this is a, a term of art from academic crypto. A signature is something that nobody can produce a forgery of, even if you give them like signatures. So here's, here's a game that defines a forgery for a signature is you, uh, say, are a challenger, and you have some adversary trying to forge. You give the challenger a public key. The challenger replies with a series of messages he wants you to sign, and you just have to keep giving him valid signatures on those messages. And then finally, if the challenger can come up with a signature on a different message, then they win. That's a forgery. Okay? What a strong signature is... Is there we define a forgery in Wait the a minute. same I, I don't, I, oh. Hold on. I, can you say that one more time? Because my brain sure. didn't... Yeah, like yeah, on a different messages where you kind of lost me. I was like, okay. Oh yeah, to... yeah. Sorry. So, so what a uh, what a signature? What it means to be a secure signature is that it's impossible for anybody to produce a forgery. Okay. Um, and we need to define the word forgery kind of carefully. So, yeah. a naive way to do this maybe is to say, well, suppose if you give somebody a public key, then they can't come up with a signature on some message, right? If all they have is a public key, right? Intuitively, that's what that's what a forgery is, right? Yeah. But the problem here, this is actually IOTA signatures are secure under this way, the internet signatures. You actually need a bit more. And, and um, to be clear, IOTA signatures are not secure because as soon as an adversary sees more than one signature on the blockchain, they learn parts of the secret key, and then they can produce forged signatures using those parts of the secret key. Okay. Which means that basically um, yeah, the, yeah, the, right. the, the hash gives uh, information about the signature scheme. Exactly. So if we want to have a signature scheme that we prove secure, we need to somehow define what an IOTA attacker does as a forgery. So instead you say, okay, well, I'm going to give the attacker a public key and a series of signatures. And even if the attacker can't come up with forgery, even with a series of signatures, then, um, then okay, then that's secure. And then we actually strengthen this even more with that the attacker choose which messages we want to sign. And the only rule we have is that the forger is not supposed to, the, the forgery doesn't count if the attacker signs the same message as one of the ones he requested. Because of course that makes sense, right? I mean, he can't just give you one of your own signatures back, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but there's still a subtlety here. And this is, this is kind of the, the 
total lesson about not rolling your own crypto is that everything's weird and subtle. This actually does allow a kind of forgery where suppose the attacker takes one of your signatures, tweaks the signature but doesn't change the message, and hands it back to you. Under the model I just described, this doesn't count as a forgery, so it's allowed. And that's exactly what transaction malleability was. The attacker takes a transaction, he takes a signature, and he can tweak the signature in some way, such that it's still valid, it's still signing exactly the same transaction, but now it's a different signature. And so if you are trying to refer to transactions by their TXID, the way Satoshi does, by hashing up the transaction, you actually care about the exact signature. You don't only care about what the signature is signing, but you care about the signature itself. And that means that you need this primitive called a strong signature rather than just a regular digital signature. So ECDSA was not enough because it was not a strong signature. Um, and then, Wait, explain to me this yeah. tweaking process, because that's the part where I'm kind of like my mind's blown because I didn't know that that was even, I, I thought by design, most things wouldn't allow that. And that if you tweak the signature, it's a totally different signature. Um, but you're saying there's 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 basically a, a, a validity collision possibility. Yeah. People can actually determine uh, uh, like a, a formula which will, by chance, yeah. maybe uh, maybe there's like a thirty percent chance that'll actually come up with a possible collision. And all they have to do is test yeah. those collisions and say, okay, I found one. And then actually, it's a it's a complete it's it's not even a forgery, as you said. It's like a well, it's yeah. a it's a it's a tweak. Uh, what was the word for it? Um, uh... Like, it's just not a forgery. It's just a malleated signature. Well, I'm not a mathematician, so how do you prove that something doesn't have that, that property? You know what I mean? Okay, so this this is cool. Um, so first, let me describe the issue with ECDSA, um, or, or one of the issues. So, um, so there are kind of two issues that I brought up. Um, one was this multi-signature thing, where like multi-signatures are inherently not strong in the sense that I'm talking about. Um, because you have multiple parties and like each party can individually change their part of the signature. So of course there are many different valid signatures if each party has the ability to contribute part to it. Um, but the more interesting thing is this ECDSA being a signature but not a strong signature issue. And I'm going to get a little bit technical here um, and then, then I'll, I'll pull out. Um, so in elliptic curve cryptography, there is a notion of addition for elliptic curve points. Um, there is a notion of negation for elliptic curve points. So if you add a point to its negative, you get this sort of zero point. We call it the point at infinity. I don't know, zero and infinity or, or you know, just notation, right? Um, so if you add a point to its negation, you get the point at infinity. And the difference between a point and its negation, if you were to plot this on a graph or something, is that the point investigation both have the same x-coordinate but different y-coordinates. The x-coordinate stays the same. And in the ECDSA signature verification equation, the only thing that gets checked is the x-coordinate of the final point. So you as a verifier take the signature uh... message, mix them up, compute a point, and check only the x-coefficient. And what this means is that an attacker can take a signature, stick a minus sign, instead of the S, there are two, two values, S and R. They stick a minus sign in front of the S, and then they have a different valid signature. And if the verifier was checking the whole final point, they would see that this no longer works. But since they're only checking the X coordinate, um, they, they, the X coordinate hasn't changed, so it's still valid. Um, so then your second question is, how could you prove that something has nothing like this? Um, and 
This is really, this is such a cool question. I'm not sure. I'm going, I'm going to time myself because I, I think I could talk for an hour and not really communicate it. So I'm just <laughs> going to try, going to try my hey, best. We're happy to run along as you are. <laughs> um, so what you do is you, so there, a component that goes into digital signatures is a hash, right? That you, uh, before you actually sign something, you take a SHA-2 hash of your message, of your transaction or whatever. And then the signature itself is some algebraic manipulation where you mix up that hash, you treat it as a number. You mix that in with your secret key, you mix it in with your secret nonce, which is this extra number you have to make up, um, and you get out this thing called a signature. And so when we are proving things in academic crypto papers, the way we model hashes is by something called a random oracle, where we imagine that rather than the everybody having this function, the SHA-2 lying around, that they put some in, they, they just compute. It's very difficult to reason about. Instead, the way we model it is that everybody has to query an oracle, give some data to the oracle, and the oracle will reply with a uniformly random output. With the continue that if you ever give the oracle the same thing twice, the oracle will give the same output. So the oracle is pretending to be the SHA-2 function, but rather than being the real SHA-2 function where you can take it apart and, and, and look at all the ands and xors and stuff, here we're just imagining an idealized, mathematical, uniformly random function instantiated by an oracle. Okay? Um, and the way that you would prove that a signature is a strong signature is you play, you, you have this challenger and this adversary playing the game that I described. You, the challenger gives the adversary a public key, the challenger gives the adversary a bunch of signatures on messages that it chooses, and then finally the adversary has to come up with something. The way we prove security is that the challenger himself has another challenger, okay? And then we try to, try to play this through. So the super challenger here, what the super challenger wants is a break of the elliptic curve discrete log problem, okay? Uh, what that is, is if somebody gives you a random curve point, try to find, uh, interpret that as a public key, try to find the secret key corresponding to that curve point, okay? Um, the idea is this should be hard. So there's a crypto game here. I give you a uniformly random public key, and if you can give me the secret key, then you've won the game, okay? So the super challenger gives the challenger a uniformly random public key. The challenger gives the adversary that public key and says, yeah, this is a public key. You need to forge signatures on, okay? The adversary comes back and says, okay, I need you to sign this message. And now the challenger is kind of in trouble here, right? The challenger needs to somehow produce a signature with this key, but the challenger doesn't even know the secret key, right? Because that, that, that's his job is to figure out the secret key. The challenger or the super challenger? The challenger. Yeah. So the challenger's challenger, job okay. is to figure out the secret key. The super challenger wants to see it. So we're going we're okay, to forget it. about the super challenger. Got it. He's just a person who wants to see the secret key. Yeah, got it. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So he's just sitting there. He, he's not going to be involved. He's just waiting for a secret key to come out of the rest so we can forget about him. Um, so... What the challenger can do, the challenger is kind of uh, in trouble here. He's supposed to reply with a valid signature on this key that he does not know the secret key to. So it turns out what he can do is he can um, make up a signature, like uniformly randomly make up a signature, and then back compute what he needs the hash, the message hash to be, in order for that signature to be valid. And so what the challenger does when given a signature query it makes up a random signature, and then the challenger also gets to be the random oracle. Okay, the challenger also gets to choose a random output. 
So the challenger does this, this computation, determines what he needs the random oracle output to be for the signature to be valid, and then says, there you go, here's my signature. Okay. And this is actually, there's a lot of subtle stuff going on here. So in order for this to work, the adversary has to be unable to distinguish the random oracle output from uniformly random. Um, and, well, I mean, that, that's kind of the subtlety. So you need to argue that even though the challenger is doing this sleight of hand, is like back computing this value, it still needs to look uniformly random. And it turns out the Schnorr, uh, say like a Schnorr signature uh, verification equation allows that to nonetheless happen. So the challenger does this, is able to, to answer all of these queries uh, this way. Um, and then finally, the adversary comes up with a forgery. And here's the weird thing. What the challenger is going to do is fork the adversary, okay? So everyone here is not a person. Everyone here is actually a program, all right? That's just, that's just how the formalism works. The adversary is going to, f the, the challenger is going to fork the adversary. And when the adversary chooses the message to forge on, that's the point of the fork. So then the challenger um, receives a random oracle query. Uh, find me the hash of this message that I just gave you. And it gives a different hash, a different result to both sides of the fork. Okay. And the adversary, now, now the adversary is forked, each adversary will come up with a signature. All right. And if the adversary is successful, it will come up with a valid forged signature on both sides. The challenger takes these two signatures, and now he can use the fact that the two signatures use the same key, use the same secret nonce, but they sign different message hashes. And this is something some of your, your uh, listeners may have heard of, this idea never reuse nonces. The idea is the challenger, by forcing the adversary to reuse nonces, has now leaked his secret key, or leaked the secret key. And so the challenger uses a double nonce attack, steals the secret key, turns around and gives it back to the super challenger. Says, ha, so there I'm done. Um, so so then, then, isn't that the adversary's fault for using the same? Like, how, how do you, like, that's the part that in reality uh, doesn't uh, sound so, like it works very well, in that the adversary itself would have, why would they use the same nonce? Like, I, I don't understand that exactly. Oh, so that's an awesome question. So the difference between Schnorr and ECDSA that makes this possible for Schnorr and impossible for ECDSA is that in Schnorr, the nonce goes into the hash. So once the adversary chooses the hash to be signing, the adversary's choice of nonce is already fixed. So the adversary chooses his nonce before he gets forked. It's right, trick here. got it. Yeah. That's and how I thought it always worked. I, I was kind of surprised that ECDSA doesn't do that. It seems almost obvious. Like, you, that's, well, the, that's, yeah. the, that's the question. I mean, is there any way for elliptic curve cryptography to do that? So... Based on the yeah, way that math so, works. So, like the way... The yeah, way based like, on the way... So what you need for, for, you sort of need to set this time boundary here. In order for the forking to work, you need to force the adversary to commit to his nonce. And the way you do that is by putting the nonce into a hash function. Um, and then in your proof, you say, oh, as soon as a hash function is queried on a nonce, then, then we do the fork is basically what happens. Um, so the difference between ECDSA and Schnorr here is that ECDSA kind of uses a separate hash for the message and a separate hash for the nonce except that the other hash for the nonce is not a real hash. What's actually done is it takes the nonce as written as a curve point and extracts the X coordinate. And the reason this is done is basically to evade a patent that Schnorr put, that, that Klaus Schnorr put on the Schnorr signature algorithm in 1991. This is entirely a patent evasion trick. Um, but as a consequence, 
you can't uh, a this consequence of, of just interpreting it as a point um, and then just only using the x coordinate is where we get this plus or minus thing from, and b using the x coordinate is not easy to reason about mathematically. Like you can actually prove ECDSA secure if you model that as a random oracle and you make a couple other unrealistic assumptions. But the fact is that extracting the x-coordinate from a point is not a remotely random operation to do. So this isn't a, a proof that really maps to reality in any way. Versus in the Schnorr case, we're modeling SHA-2 as a random oracle. Um, and SHA-2, as far as we're aware, um, we've never seen any like deviations from uniform randomness. If you just That's like feed SHA-2. Like I had, a, <laughs> I have too many questions. I'm not a photographer, but I've been kind of like observing the space for so long that now I've developed these like questions that probably are very obvious and basic. But how do we know that SHA two is even random? Like, how do we prove that basic? Like, it's how do we know it's uniform, really random? Like that. That's some. Yeah, go ahead. Right, so that's that's a really good question, and I'm not going to give you an answer that you're happy with, and maybe you and your listeners are going to be like much more suspicious of cryptography. But basically, here's the deal. Um, in general, it seems conceptually impossible to do that. Like, imagine I am pretending, like, I'm trying to prove that SHA-2 is random by, like, if you give me some message, I either give you a uniformly random result or I give you the result of SHA-2, and you can't distinguish them. That's kind of like how a cryptographer would think about proving something is uniformly random. This, of course, doesn't Okay, work. good. That, that's yeah, what I figured, but I didn't want to, like, make that assumption. Right. Like, it's, then, yeah, it's like, how would you know if it's random or not? But like, then again, there is a tax on hashes if the hash itself isn't evenly distributed to the point where, you know, you can actually create, like, you know. Right. So, so there, there are two questions here. One is about distinguishing randomness from not randomness, and the other is about the distribution itself. So the way that you would interpret, the, the way that you would distinguish, the, the way that you would prove that SHA-2 is uniformly random is through this game I described. Um, where you give me some input, I either give you uniform randomness or I give you a SHA-2 output. That, of course, doesn't work because you can just run SHA-2 yourself on your own computer and see whether what I gave you was SHA-2 or not. So in that sense, like, it's totally not random. It's totally predictable because it comes out of a public algorithm that somebody published and like anybody can implement themselves. So how is that random at all? So instead, what we do is... Um, yeah, because you could cluster is what I'm trying to say. Is like it seems like yeah. you could actually get clustered or, or values that are you know relatively close that are yeah. you know, given very relatively close input. It just doesn't seem to me like, you know what I mean? Yep. Yep. So there are a couple of heuristics that we use when evaluating the strength of hash functions. One is this sort of avalanche effect, where if you give me some challenge and you give me the challenge with one bit flipped, on average about half of the bits of the hash should be flipped. Like every little change you do should completely change the hash is the idea here. Um, and then more generally, you can look at feeding things into a hash function. If anybody can come up with a sequence of values that are not like chosen based on the output of the hash function that still manage to cluster, like if somebody can find a whole bunch of values that all hash to very similar things without like grinding through and like just like picking them by brute force, then that would indicate that the hash function is broken. Um, so the heuristic is basically that if somebody can find a computationally cheap program, meaning one that isn't doing exponential amount of work, like it has to do twice as much work for every additional bit it's trying to grind, can you somehow get a non-uniform sequence um, of values out of the SHA-2 function? 
So for example, if you take, if you imagine just generating all the integers in a row, take the hash of zero, the hash of one, the hash of two, the hash of three, the hash of four, and so on, and feed that into a standard random number generate uh, distribution test to see whether it's uniform, to see whether like half of the bits are one, and like a quarter of the pairs are one, one, and a quarter are zero, one, and a quarter or whatever. Um, the result will pass any any barrage of randomness tests that you throw at it, okay? And it turns out the same is true, as near as we can tell, for any sequence of numbers that is cheap to generate. Um, so if you, you can like define a sequence of numbers, if you want to make sure the top bit of your hashes to be, is zero, you can do that, but you've got to throw out half of your numbers, basically. And the only way to choose which ones to throw out is by actually doing the hash. So the idea is that for every bit you want to grind, you have to do twice as much work. And so actually, the heuristic I'm describing, this is kind of cool, is actually the proof of work algorithm that Bitcoin uses. Mm -hmm. The idea here is that if the only way to find a hash value that's in some very small target, maybe it needs to have like 80 bits or zeros, then the only way to do that is by doing 80 bits of work, by doing two to the 80 work and just trying two to the 80 different hashes. Um, and in fact, that is what the Bitcoin network is doing. And as far as anybody is aware, there is no more efficient way to do mining other than to just like choose some sequence, just like keep counting through that sequence and keep hashing the result of, of that sequence, just hash over and over and over. And if anybody could find a, um, some sequence that would result in like smaller hashes on average or like somehow would skew the numbers, then that would be a deviation from uniform randomness. It would also be an optimization to Bitcoin's proof of work. Um, and we would hear about that either in uh, either by directly by them publishing it and being good citizens, or maybe somebody just secretly uses it and then they get a hash power advantage because hashing is cheaper for them than anybody else. So, when, so I guess I could have shortcutted this whole rambling answer and say the reason that we consider SHA-2 to be uniformly random is because the most efficient way to do SHA-2 proof of work that anyone's found is to just hash over and over and over. That's and literally why it was chosen, it was because it was so, it was, I guess it was you know, reported to be the most uniformly random and basically the entirety of all proof of work in Bitcoin has been trying to prove that wrong unsuccessfully. Yep, exactly. Fuck you, I'm going to um, make my own blockchain and it's going to use MD5. <laughs> uh, I guess I, I, Too Long didn't read. Uh, we can probably blame all of our, a lot of our crypt, uh, cryptography woes on the fact that Dr. Schnorr was an asshole and tried to patent something. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with every part of that. Um, <laughs> he's still working as a professor. I mean, you can go visit him. I, I consider doing that sometimes. And I really wonder what he thinks today about all of this. Because I've said a lot of pretty mean things about him to the press before. <laughs> and he's never reached out to me. I don't know if he's aware of it or not. Um, but certainly throughout the 90s, he was very active on uh, various mailing lists, um, arguing that ECDSA infringed his patent and that, in fact, people should be paying him royalties, even for ECDSA. So this wasn't just like an accidental thing or like university uh, processes or anything like that. Like he deliberately patented his signature algorithm uh, with the intention of making money off of royalties, and he actively pursued making these royalties. Um, and in the end, he didn't make a dime because NIST uh, defined the ECDSA algorithm to evade this patent, and no court ever held that, uh, that this actually was uh, in violation of the Schnorr patent. So the result was just Schnorr just didn't get used until the patent expired in 2008. Um, and then the first use after that I'm aware of was three years later 
um, ED25519 came out in 2011. That was Daniel Bernstein's signature algorithm. That's basically Schnorr with a couple extra hardening steps uh, applied to it. Um, so nobody nobody used the patent. Uh, nobody used Schnorr signatures from their invention in 1989 until ED25519 in 2011. That's 22 years, basically. Um, and unfortunately, 22 years that contained Bitcoin's inception, um, which forced Bitcoin to use ECDSA. I'm seeing a lot of that stuff still. Uh, there's a lot of patents, especially one of the areas of research I got kind of really interested in was error correcting codes. And there's just so much patent work done in that that are only just now finally coming out of um, coming out of uh, coming out of patent. So yeah, I mean it's it's tragic. But uh, yeah, anyway, we were going we're going to all over, all over all this stuff uh, that's pretty. You know, I think it's it's fascinating honestly i could talk to you about about this for hours but i think we need to get into some of the block uh, uh block stream stuff so um um what's taproot what's taproot <laughs> that's interesting way to ask that question <laughs> yeah no that's that's, uh, that's a great question the taproot is a proposal for bitcoin for a new type of bitcoin output so today bitcoin outputs are uh are labeled with what's called a witness program um, this is just like the script that describes under what conditions are you allowed to spend the coins. Um, if you have something called a witness program, the witness program might uh, describe like public keys that you need signatures for. It might describe time locks. It might describe hash pre-images, like whatever, like whatever crazy stuff you're doing. Um, you have uh, every Bitcoin output is described by such a program. Um, and to spend the, to spend those coins, you have to satisfy the program. So what Taproot proposes is to have a new version of the of this witness program where rather than having the program be a hash of a bunch of bitcoin script opcodes describing a program the program will just be a public key okay and to spend the coins you need to produce a signature with this public key a schnorr signature with this public key and the thinking here is that the majority of all bitcoin transactions are ones in which a single user is signing to spend their coins, they're just producing a signature anyway. And actually there's a different type of, of output. Um, we actually already have a shortcut for this in, in Bitcoin. Um, and so we're proposing to make all outputs use this kind of shortcut, uh, except using Schnorr signatures instead of ECDSA. And the cool thing here is that Schnorr signatures enable a very efficient multi-party computation or a very simple multi-party computation that lets multiple participants uh, produce a single signature with a joint key that they all jointly control. And you can actually do better than that. You can do thresholds. You can have a key that like 10 people jointly control, but any six of them are able to produce a signature for or whatever. And the idea is that for most coins on the network, um, even ones that are not controlled by a single signer using a boring old wallet, um, are controlled by a fixed set of counterparties. So for example, if you use the Blockstream green wallet, um, I believe there is a, all the coins are controlled by a two of two output. So you need to sign and Blockstream needs to sign. And there's also this emergency clause where after uh, a couple of weeks or something, uh, if our service is down, then the coins are, are entirely controlled by the user. So the idea is that the, um, the user has well has custody of the coins in that um, if the service goes down or the service isn't working or something, they have the ability to get their coins back. But under normal operations, they have split custody between themselves and Blockstream. 
And what Blockstream will do is, is Blockstream will sign anything except double spend. So you have this, um, basically you have the protection of having Blockstream uh, holding half of the key for you so that if your phone gets stolen, you can contact us and, and we will stop signing stuff. Um, but you still have sole custody of the coins. But, but what I want to talk about here is the fact that what's happening on the network is there is this output that today uses this witness program that describes a two-person multi-signature. Um, under normal situations, um, both the user's wallet on their phone and the Blockstream signing server, both of them agree to just sign the coins. And so from the, block, from the blockchain's perspective, well, the blockchain doesn't really care that there are two participants. It doesn't care that there's this time-locked backout thing or anything like that. Um, all the blockchain cares about is that whoever was supposed to authorize those coins moving, that whoever agreed that the coin should move. And so this combination of Schnorr signatures um, using, uh, allowing a very efficient multi-signature or threshold signature construction, and the fact that under most situations, um, there are a set of counterparties who jointly control some coins, and normally they all agree to just move the coins, means that you can have these coins controlled by a key and a signature, and that will work for like 99.9% .9 of use cases. Um, and, so, and so you get uh, all these use cases covered for the much more efficiently and much more privately because it was on the blockchain as one, one key, one signature, regardless of how many parties are involved. But you may be thinking- And that construction can be as any tiered and, and it can have any sort of construction you want, right? So you can have basically multi-parties that are required to do another multi-party signature and they can all build up to one and ultimately result in one threshold signature that actually can be, you know, verified on chain, is that correct? Yep, exactly. You can have like any arbitrary structure of keys, um, ands and ors and thresholds of, of different participants on multiple layers down. And you can construct a protocol that's fairly simple, or I guess the complexity of the protocol grows as the complexity of, of your policy um, that produces a single signature. So that's great, except, well, signatures are not the only thing that people use uh, the uh, Bitcoin script for, that people are using the blockchain for. Of course, people are also using like hash primages, which they use for atomic swaps and lightning channels. And importantly, people also use this tool called time locks. And that's how you can get assurance as a user of some complicated contract that if something goes wrong, if your counterparty goes away, if Blockstream folds or turns evil or, or whatever, that you will still get the coins in your wallet back. You need to have this time lock here. And so here's the cool thing that Taproot does is it makes the observation that under ordinary circumstances, this time lock clause is never used. And so what Taproot does is it has a way to actually commit to the time locks, uh, to a time lock and some extra script and some extra clause or whatever, to hide a commitment to that script inside of the public key itself. In a way that causes, it will cause the public key to change, of course, so it will cause the secret key to change, but in a way that makes the key still signable. So, if you were using Taproot for something like the green wallet, then you, there would be a single key that is jointly controlled by Blockstream and the user's wallet. And that key would have a commitment hiding in it. And what would be committed to is a time lock and another key that the user controls by themselves. Okay? And under ordinary circumstances... I need to say that again. I'm sorry. That, that's really a complex system for me. Could you say it one more time? Just sure. Yeah. Yep. Um, so let me maybe start by describing this key commitment thing because I'm hand-waving around that. 
Um, so a, a commitment in cryptography is just some sort of data, usually it's like a hash or something, that is both binding and hiding. And I'm going to focus on binding right now. So what binding means is that it's impossible for somebody, once they come up with a commitment, to decide that they actually wanted to have committed to some other data. So if I'm thinking of a number between 1 and 10, I can give you the hash of my number, and actually I'd give you the hash of my number plus some, some randomness so that you couldn't just try all the hashes. And then, um, and then you can guess what my number is, and you can be assured that I have to tell you the number that I, I hashed to give you. Like in the answer, you guess the number, and I'm like, no, you're wrong, or yes, you're right. And then I'll tell you my number, and I'll tell you whatever randomness I put in there. And the point of having a commitment is that I can't change that. Okay, what the commitment yep, does yep. is it ties, yep. Um, and then the fact that it's hiding means that you can't just look at it and like guess what my number is just by looking at it. Um, but that's it, not so interesting. It's, it's like, yeah, I, I'm not lying to you. It's, it's, this is, you know, this yeah, is what I did. Exactly. Um, so uh, for Taproot, we've discovered a way, we've discovered a, a scheme. Um, this is a scheme called pay to contract that I believe originates with Timo Hanke. And uh, um, he's a cryptographer in the Bitcoin space who's been around forever, I think in like 2013 where you take an elliptic curve point and you add to that point another point, which is a hash of the original point and then also some extra data. And in doing so, your final point is actually a commitment. It, it, the point itself becomes a commitment to this extra data and also to the original point. But it's just a point is a cool thing. It's still a public key. It started as a public key and now it's a public key. The only difference is that it's been tweaked in a way that is actually a binding commitment to some extra data. Okay. And yeah, yeah, okay. And so actually that's, yeah, okay, got it. That yep. reminds me of Shamir for some reason because when you do that kind of stuff with that, it's like you're adding the C and the C is actually yep. here. Yeah. Yeah, algebraically it's, it's, it's pretty similar. Um, and so this pay to contract construction is actually used in practice. Um, the way that I'm aware of it being used is in Blockstream's Liquid, which is a sidechain. It's a federated sidechain. Um, it's, it's an independent blockchain, but you can move Bitcoins onto it and off of it. And when the Bitcoins are moved on, um, they're basically in custody um, of a, a consortium of participants. There's 11 of 15 participants need to sign to move the coins back. Um, and the way that you transfer coins is that you actually take the keys that uh, belong to the Federation members, and you do this paid contract construction on the coins. And what you're committing to, you're turning all of the Federation keys into a commitment to basically a, a proxy address, to like a proxy Bitcoin output um, that nobody can see. Like in the end, what hits the blockchain are just a bunch of keys. And then to claim your coins on the liquid chain, you provide a reference to your transaction and also reveal what you committed to. You reveal, you say, hey, here's my proxy address. Here's my proxy witness program, I should say. And here's a witness for it. So I secretly committed to my own public key. And here's a signature for that public key. And so basically, you're spending the coins on the liquid network, except the coins you're referencing are not old liquid coins. They're actually old Bitcoin coins. And the witness program you're satisfying is not the Bitcoin witness program, but it's a secret alternate witness program that you hid inside the liquid program using pay to contract. All right, and then I apologize for like, I'm, I'm waving my hands in here. I, 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 this is only sound, of course. But I apologize if that was difficult to follow. But the idea is you can take a program and you can commit to an alternate program in it. That's what we use for Liquid. And so what Taproot is, is it's a proposal to use that technique on Bitcoin itself. So ordinarily, we have a public key 
And as long as all participants in your contract agree, they can just jointly produce a signature and just spend the coins using that. If anything goes wrong, if you need to use a time lock, if you need to reveal a hash image, if you need to do any like weird additional things, then you have the ability to reveal your alternate program and blockchain verifiers, because the commitment is binding, can check that you really are revealing the correct program. And then you reveal a witness to that program, just the way that you do today. Um, it's just like an alternate is basically um, an old school Bitcoin output that you've committed to inside of this new school taproot output with a couple with a couple little differences for efficiency and privacy. But that's essentially what taproot is, is this ability to hide, to have a public key um, that under normal circumstances is indistinguishable from any other public key. It's indistinguishable that there is a complicated contract inside. It's indistinguishable if there's a contract inside. It's indistinguishable how many signers are involved. It's indistinguishable what kind of threshold or weird policy of signers are involved. It's all one key, one signature. And using this pay to contract trick, you still have assurance that the blockchain will enforce whatever extra rules that you might need enforced under different circumstances. So let me, uh, I want to try and recap this in layman's terms. Um, currently, we do this in a variety of ways using Bitcoin script, or we're not capable of doing it. The goal, the overending, overarching goal of using things like Schnorr signatures and Taproot um, is to move a lot of the complexity off-chain and make everything on-chain basically look the same with the ability to prove that what happened off-chain happened correctly. Yep, exactly. That's exactly right. Um, and so I've talked about how, so I, I described kind of two ways for doing that. One is if you have a lot of keys, then you just directly produce a signature and all the blockchain sees as a signature. That's yep. great. Um, the other thing I described was this commitment scheme where if you if you need to use the blockchain enforced script, you reveal the script and then, then you just do it normally. But at least you don't have to reveal it normally. So that's also a way to move stuff. It lets you move uncommon things off-chain. Um, or, or rather, it lets you move things that aren't used off of the chain. Yeah. And then you only put the things that yeah. you actually use on the chain. That's the whole conversation um, we had previously about Merkleized abstract syntax trees. It's like you have yeah. all these particular options of what you could do um, in terms of the signature scheme. But when actually you actually when you when when the deed goes down and everyone signs something, you only show the path that was used and not all of the other paths that could have happened. And so that way, all of that stuff doesn't have to live on the blockchain. You get a lot of privacy and a lot of and a lot of like information saving on the blockchain itself. Yep, that's exactly right. And actually, Taproot includes Mast. Um, so I've been talking about um, the public key committing to like an old school output. Mm -hmm. What it actually commits to is a Mast root. Okay. It commits to a Merkle tree with all the different alternate spending. So you can have as many alternates as you want, and you only have to reveal the one. That's the idea. It's really beautiful, actually. It's like you have this 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 arbitrarily complex shit that exists, right? Uh, yeah. think, about it, think about it, I always think about it in terms of a tree because we all know Merkle trees and things like that. And when, we th when people on blockchain tend to have an idea on the visualization of a Merkle tree. And at the leaf of all of this Merkle tree, depending on how complex it is and how many layers deep it is, you end up with like all of these possible variations of paths you can take to get to something that happened in reality. And what you're doing is you're picking one of those paths and only showing that thing and throwing the rest away. But every single one of those paths theoretically is valid in the signature scheme. But what you actually end up with, it's a very succinct signature at the very end of the blockchain that doesn't take up too much space, but is, but gives you an audit, audit trail and provability that what happened happened correctly. Yep, 
No, no, that's exactly that's a perfect summary. And this is—is is this because like, I understand? I I clearly understand why you care so much about short signatures because it enables these types of things. Is the reason why like we didn't do this earlier is because it just hadn't been thought up yet because everyone is so, so focused on ECDSA. Largely, well, they needed yeah. SegWit for this well, too, right? Right. Uh, every, yeah, everything's harder without SegWit. Certainly, like without SegWit, we were like stuck on like. How can we spend outputs that haven't already been committed in the blockchain? Yeah, you it couldn't really. Just, like, we were you had to wait. We couldn't do anything. Yeah, like in principle. So now that we know how to do all this stuff, we can actually go back and we could probably figure out how to do it with ECDSA. Actually, we we know how. It's just much more complicated. There's a lot more code and a lot more crypto assumptions and, and so forth. We could probably even do this all without SegWit. Um, although, why would we now that we have SegWit? But like without having that in front of us, we were kind of like stalled out at the starting line. I mean, like we we couldn't. It was just difficult to think past uh, these like really fundamental, like these basic problems that needed to be solved before we could do much of anything else. Um, Here's a key so, question for you. Yep. Um, and I think this may be somebody who may be naive or even not naive would, would be thinking, how is this not new crypto? How is this not rolling your own crypto? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so as I... Um, as I hinted at earlier in this uh, conversation, like changing a blockchain, um, a blockchain itself is a whole crypto system. And like Taproot is definitely a crypto system. And the integration of Taproot in Bitcoin is absolutely a whole crypto system. And so the difference, so ultimately this is rolling your own crypto, but ultimately somebody has to roll new crypto. Right. Like we say, don't roll your own crypto. We mean like as an individual, as somebody who does not have expertise, who does not have uh, a lot of review cycles, who does not have uh, like uh, whose product like hasn't been reviewed by the, the wider community in the cryptography industry and so forth. Like if you're just going to invent something and just deploy it without any review, without any oversight, without anything, then you're going to be in trouble. But ultimately somebody does create new cryptography, right? Like people invent new encryption schemes, people invent new signature schemes, and these go through enormous standards bodies, they get published in academic literature, they go through peer review, they go through competitions, people try to attack them, uh, people put a lot of money writing on them, <clears throat> and all this kind of stuff like that. And so when we propose things for the Bitcoin network like this, we have to go through all of that. So, the, um, so first of all, Taproot is provably secure, like you can come up with an academic proof that if somebody could, for example, spend Taproot coins without either signing with the keys they need or, um, or revealing a script and then satisfying that script and it has to be the right script, then they could break the elliptic curve discrete log problem. You can formally prove that that's true. Um, in addition, if um, users are generating one of these multi-signatures I've described, where they all jointly come together to produce a signature, they would probably use a crypto system like Musig, which has like quite a long paper associated with it that's gone through peer review. Um, and the implementation of the code verifying this, this is all part of the SecB256K1 library, which is part of Bitcoin Core. Um, so now we're into implementation details. So here's where we need like community review. We need the industry to look at this. We need the Bitcoin community to look at this. We need professional cryptographers to look at this. And because the Bitcoin project is so high profile, we're able to get review from academics and engineers and industry players because there's money riding on it. We get review from attackers, which is very nice. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> and uh, it's, I mean, it's worth a lot, certainly, if, uh, if people can't attack it, even when they have such an incentive. Um, and then also Bitcoin moves very slowly relative to other uh, cryptocurrency systems. Um, we spend a lot of time doing this kind of QA and review cycles and stuff like this. And then as one final thing, the truth is actually like Taproot is conceptually pretty simple. It, it all hinges on this pay-to-contract construction, which has been around for, I guess, six years in some form or another, uh, which we've used at Blockstream in Liquid in production. If you can break this, you can steal all the coins in Liquid. Um, and you um, basically it's like a lot of review from many different players um, with many different motivations and then many years of that is a short answer, both for the crypto system itself, um, and we also have like academic papers that, that go through peer review, and then also for the implementation. Um, so ultimately, so yeah, so ultimately this is rolling our own crypto, but here, our own crypto kind of like it's the, the industry's own crypto. Right, um, and there's like a lot of people involved in making sure that this is working because like you said, there's a lot of money on it. So also even built the on... attackers themselves don't want their money stolen. It's also built on age old primitives. Yeah, yeah. So the privileges themselves already right. kind of existed, like you said. So I mean, but uh, this this kind of leads me to another. I have so many questions for you, dude. Like I want to know, like why I, I like I'm frustrated because there's no way we're gonna get through all of them. But like, uh, like I want to know, like why side channels aren't a thing yet. Like uh, in in any real way. Like I I'm not such um, uh, side chains aren't a side thing chain. yet. Yep. Yeah. Like uh, there's there's so many things that like like I I've read about and I just want to hear it from the horse's mouth. But I don't think I can do that. Like right now but there is one topic i absolutely feel like i need to cover and since we're already on the topic of covering your own crypto i want to talk about mimble wimble sure. and i want to talk about its relation to lightning network and maybe using it as an atop, uh using uh mimble wimble um as sort of a another like atomic swap mechanism between bitcoin and mimble wimble through the lightning network all these things i've seen you talk about like it's just super interesting and i just was wondering if you maybe could talk about what mimble wimble is briefly and then talk about why it's important to bitcoin before you start sure before you start um we uh we uh highlighted a show you did on the monero monitor quite a while ago with mike um oh yeah network i'm gonna have that in the show notes for people to listen to it's about an hour, maybe an hour hour and a half long episode of you describing what mimble wimble is in detail and it's a wonderful description but uh here give us a short cool. overview we can i just i just encourage listeners to go listen to that if they're curious for more awesome yeah so let me give a very short uh, overview like maybe one or two minutes then of what mimble wimble is um so back in 2015 this will be short even though i'm starting four years in the past um <laughs> Greg Maxwell developed a, a thing called confidential transactions, um, along with Adam Back and, and Peter Willa and, and myself and a few others. Um, confidential transactions was a scheme for replacing all of the inputs and outputs amounts in transactions with these hi hiding binding commitments, these special kind of commitments called Pedersen commitments. These are not hashes, they're elliptic curve points. They're not elliptic curve points like the pay to contract thing, they're, they're just a different kind of commitment. Um, these are homomorphic what are called homomorphic commitments, meaning that validators can add up all the commitments on the input side of a transaction to get a new commitment, and it'll actually be a commitment to the sum of the, the input values. So the user doesn't know what this sum is, but they can still get a commitment to it. They can add up all the outputs, and then they can compare the two commitments, and then they will know that the input value equals the output value, even if they don't know what the amounts are. And so this was developed by Greg Maxwell for uh, LMS Alpha, which is what the sidechain that later became Liquid. 
um, or that that liquid was based on, I should say. Um, and then it was picked up by a whole bunch of other, uh, like Monero, for example, and uh, and a whole bunch of other things. So what Mimblewimble does is it takes this confidential transaction thing. It throws away all of the extra script stuff, all this taproot stuff, all this Bitcoin script, all these multi-signatures and hash images and blah, blah, blah. Throws it all away. It says, how about the blinding factor that's used in these Pedersen increments? What if we use that as a secret key? And we use the fact that only if you know the blinding factor are you able to make a valid transaction. And that's going to be our transaction authorization. So basically, if it's possible to make a transaction to balance, you must have owned the inputs, is the thinking underlying Mimblewimble. Um, and so the result is a blockchain where basically there is no separate crypto system for authorizing payments. It's basically if the transaction existed, it must have been authorized because uh, nobody else could have created the transaction. And this has some nice properties in that if you have a transaction spending an old transaction's outputs, the validation equation for this is this giant sum of elliptic curve points where that output that was spent appears on the positive side of the equation when it was created and on the negative side of the equation when it was spent. And you can literally just delete it entirely. It doesn't matter. If the same thing appears on both sides of an equation, you can just remove it and the equation is still valid. So this means that validators can basically cut out all of the intermediate steps of transactions. And to prevent various, like, there, there are various uh, attacks on the naive scheme that I just described, where basically somebody can come up with a fake output that is like the negative of somebody else's output and then steal their coins by, by constructing their outputs to cancel out. So the way this is prevented in Mimblewimble is that there is this extra, uh, not, not really an output, this thing called a kernel which is attached to every transaction, or sorry, it's not attached. All it just needs to be beside the transaction and makes the transaction balance. And what this kernel is, is it's actually a multi-signature key of all the participants in a transaction. And like, I, I would take way too long to explain like how exactly uh, this is accomplished, but basically you have this extra public key. And for the transaction to be valid, you need not only that it balances, that inputs minus outputs minus a kernel equals zero, you also need a signature with the kernel. And this is a Schnorr signature. And the kernel is secretly, uh, it's two things. It's both a commitment to zero, and it's also a public key belonging jointly to all of the participants in the transaction. Okay. And this, and as long as there is a signature with that key, it means that everybody involved in the transaction authorized it. So then you can throw that on the blockchain. And then in the Mimblewimble blockchain, validators can just download, they don't need to download all the transaction data. They only need to download the unspent outputs because those are the only outputs that haven't been canceled out by other transactions. And they also need to download the set of kernels and set of signatures. Okay. And this makes validation much more efficient um, because the only thing that you need to check are signatures. It's possible to what's called, what's called batch verify these signatures. So you can verify them much faster than verifying individual signatures. Um, and there's, there's just less stuff to check. And then also you're downloading way less data. And so, what's, so this is cool. This is all very cool. And you get quite a bit of privacy by this use of confidential transactions. But um, there's a problem here which is that I started by getting rid of all of the script system and all the authorizations and stuff. And so an immediate question somebody is going to ask is, wait, if I don't have a script system, I don't have time locks, I don't have hash premages, how am I going to do atomic swaps? How am I going to do lightning? Like, how am I going to do any of that? Um, so it turns out lock times are, are not too difficult to kind of hack onto the blockchain, um, to hack onto the 
hash images are much harder. Because the idea behind a hash challenge is that you want, if somebody spends some coins, you want them to be forced to reveal the pre-image to a hash, to the blockchain. And then the other party can see the pre-image on the blockchain and they use that to like, um, like feed into a different payment channel or, or whatever you're doing, like create another transaction. Um, they basically, they use the blockchain as a communication layer um, to communicate a secret and, and make different transactions be atomic. You can't do this in Mimblewimble because you're deleting all of the transaction data. And there's no like way you can hack that on. I mean, there's no evidence that certain that outputs existed or didn't exist um, once they've been spent, which means if an output has some hash pre-images requirement, like that's just, just gone. The blockchain can't enforce it because the blockchain can't tell whether the output even existed. Okay. So it seemed to be for a while that Mimblewimble was basically dead on arrival. It's cool. You've got this great super scalable layer one blockchain that completely undermines any ability to layer two. So you get your like 10x or whatever you get from having Mimblewimble, but then you can't have your 100x or your 1000x from using Lightning. Like, just sucks. And I got, so myself and a few other people got to thinking about this. Like, is there any way that we could somehow get these hash pre-images on Mimblewimble? And this is cool because it's actually going to tie right, right back into Taproot. And I found a way through something called an adapter signature. And the way this works very briefly is that, um, if two parties are jointly producing a Schnorr signature, so they have a key that, that represents both of them, they're doing a two of two um, signature, then there are two stages to this. First, the two parties um, provide their nonces to each other, and then they sum up those nonces and produce a message hash. Um, so you, you remember back from when I was breaking Schnorr signatures at the beginning of this, you have to give the nonce before you get the hash. Um, same principle here, uh, both parties have to share their nonces. And then each party is individually able to compute the hash. And then each party produces an actual signature using that hash. So the two, two stages, two rounds of interaction. Um, and actually, there needs to be three rounds. Um, there needs to be a pre-commitment to the nonces for, for reasons that I don't have time to go into. But the simplest version is this two-version thing, um, which um, where, where just you add up the nonces, you get a hash, then you add up the signatures. And so what somebody can do Let's make this more concrete. Um, so suppose that you and I are doing, um, here you, yeah, either one of you can be you. Um, I'm going to do all the cool stuff. Uh, you and I are uh, doing can a- Can I be you? Uh, I want to be you. Let me get Colin. <laughs> Colin, Colin's you. Got it. You're talking to me. Got it. To Colin. I'm just, oh, uh, I'm just super, right. I'm the super challenger for now. All right. There we go. Yeah. Um, so me and Colin. So we're doing a two of two signature. What I'm going to do is, uh, so Colin's going to give me his nonce. I'm going to give Colin mm -hmm. my nonce. Um, and now we can, uh, uh, we can compute our hash. Um, and now for us to complete the signature, we both have to provide our own signatures that use the specific message and the specific nonce. Because if we change either of those, then the message hash changes and our signatures won't be valid. Like, like at this point, we are committed to everything. And in particular, the final signature I produce is unique. There's only one possible signature. Colin doesn't know it, but there's only one possible signature. And similarly, there's only one possible signature that Colin can produce. Okay, so at this point, I can think of a secret, I can encrypt that secret to the signature, or vice versa, I can encrypt my signature to the secret. And I'm going to give that to Colin. And I can do this in a way that Colin can very easily verify. So what, what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose a secret key and a public key. I'm going to give Colin the public key. And so the secret that I'm going to reveal is a secret key corresponding to this. So now I give Colin this encrypted signature thing. Uh, I've encrypted a signature, I've encrypted the secret to the signature. 
using the public key and all of the other data that Colin has available, he can actually verify that I've done this, that what I gave him really is a valid signature, except that I encrypted some other crap into it. And so now Colin can provide me a signature. And maybe this is a signature on a transaction giving me my money. Wait a minute. Okay. I, yep. I can validate that I can do that. Like I can validate yep. that the signature, maybe I misunderstood that. You give me a signature and I mean, I can validate that you, it's a valid signature, except you added some yep. random crap. Yeah, exactly. So if, if I give you the, the signature, you can yeah. validate that. Oh, and, and so here's the cool part. Um, if I give you a signature, you can validate the signature. Of course, that's the nature of signatures. If I give you a signature plus some random secret key, then you take the validation equation for the signature and add the public key to the validation equation. And there's your, there's your validation equation for an encrypted signature. It's, it's oh. just that simple. Oh, okay. Um, yep. Um, so, so you can check this. Um, and so now you sign the transaction to give me my coins, okay? Or you give me the signature. And now for me to actually take my coins, I need to contribute my signature, of course. Otherwise, the blockchain won't accept it. So I do that. I contribute my signature. I, I combine it with yours. I publish it to the blockchain, blah, blah, blah. Now you, Colin, can look at the blockchain, take the signature from the chain. You can subtract off your contribution. You can subtract off the encrypted blob that I gave you, and you will be left with a secret. And so what this means is that the only way I was able to take my coins was by revealing a secret to you, a specific secret to you that you were then able to go use another protocol or something. So I've gotten this hash premise trick that's used for atomic swaps, and I've embedded that inside of a signature, and now it works with Mimblewimble, because Mimblewimble does have signatures on the kernels. Does that mean that, so that, that basically you've enabled scripting on Mimblewimble is basically what, what I'm hearing then, is because if you're able to do just those atomic swaps, and basically it's anything that can have that system set up, you know, compatible with it, you can actually maybe going through several routes, actually have like a scripting system built into Mimblewimble. Is that correct? Because that was one, yeah. of, the, so that was one well, of the things that was kind of like like a barrier from what I understand on that, yep. that point is that you couldn't do any sort of scripting at all. No smart contracts at, at all or anything like that. Um, and so, uh, but that seems like since you could go through this route to get to Bitcoin, you can basically do scripting. Is that correct? Basically, you're somewhat limited in the scripting you can do, although I'm going to double back and talk. There's actually some things you can do that you can't do with Bitcoin script. Um, but yes, you have the ability to do multi-signatures like inherently, and then you also get these hash pre-images. Um, you, you really do need time locks to do anything useful, but you can kind of hack time locks onto the Mimblewimble blockchain. Like you, you, I mean, you do have a chain of blocks. You can count them. You can use them as a clock. You can, you, you can make that work. Um, but the hash pre-images are the hard part, and we've enabled hash pre-images and so you enable certain forms of scripting. Um, and so here's where things, um, so this was actually the last time that I was really seriously involved in any Mimblewimble project or research. Because once I realized I could do this with signatures, I said, wait a minute, I can do that on Bitcoin then. I don't, I like all this cool Mimblewimble stuff, that's great, but I have this whole new scripting paradigm that's super private um, and super efficient, and I can just use it on Bitcoin. And so then later, when I was talking to Greg and Peter and we came up with Taproot, this was part of the motivation for Taproot. This was the motivation for having outputs that by default are spent only with signatures. Is that actually you don't need the script even when you're doing cool script stuff. You only need it for time locks. If you're doing hash locks, if you're doing multi-signatures, if you're doing whatever, you don't need the script. You only need the signatures using scriptless scripts or using these adapter signatures. The scriptless scripts is sort of what I call this whole family of, uh, of different things you can it's do. It's a marketing term. Yeah, it's a marketing term. Um, and... And so this is, this is a large part of the motivation for Taproot being designed 
to optimize the signing with a signature path versus the alternate path is that actually the signing with a signature path lets you do all sorts of cool stuff. And but why did that take you off of Mimblewimble? Because Mimblewimble has other features. First, it's it's it's, uh, it's a lot uh, smaller of a, yeah. of a of a of a of a chain. Um, yeah. It's uh, it's private. Um, yep. Like so, are, are you like? Do you still think Mimblewimble has a purpose, or is this like Taproot going to replace that? Yep. Oh, certainly. So so let me. Um, so first off, as a researcher, my feeling is like Mimblewimble's done. Like there's no there's no more fun problems there. Um, so that, that's part of my part of my motivation. There's no more fun problems to solve. Um, but the other thing is that the value add for creating these scriptless scripts um, and for then there's all sorts of supporting a software that needs to be written and all sorts of stuff like that. Uh, the value add to Bitcoin is much greater because Bitcoin, first of all, has like no privacy tech along these lines today. Um, Bitcoin is also used by many more people in a much more like in just a far more context in a far wider context. Um, which means that the kind of supporting software and infrastructure we need to make these scriptless scripts a reality um, can be created on Bitcoin, and it has a much higher chance of being created um, and having the kind of review and robust design and uh, quality assurance that we need for crypto systems like this. You're going to get that from the Bitcoin community. It will be very difficult to get such things from people implementing Mimblewimble chains or even Monero or something like that because these projects tend to be much smaller they tend to be much more focused on implementing novel privacy tech um, at the expense, possibly, of going through the years of review cycles and, and QA and all of this stuff. Um, the, their job, like the, the job and the ethos of these chains is very much like, let's get cool privacy tech in the hands of users now. And they aren't necessarily so concerned, um, like, for them, like, or, for Bitcoin, if there's a failure that causes like an inflation bug or something in a chain or causes coins to be stealable, that's it. It's game over for Bitcoin. It's probably game over for every other cryptocurrency. Whereas with these smaller chains that are doing more experimental stuff, kind of the nature of the chain is that they're pretty experimental. And so users expect a certain increased degree of risk. Um, and then also because they take a much smaller proportion of the market share and of the mind share, it's less catastrophic when they encounter problems. They're generally able to react more quickly, um, and then there's typically just much less of a loss as these sort of things happen. Um, so what this means is that it's cool if you're, doing, if you're developing new stuff and you're like solving new problems, then it's awesome to work with these chains because they, they will help you get something that can be deployed and that's something that's actually out there. And my feeling about Mimblewimble is that all of the problems that are at that stage are kind of like, solved or like other people are solving them or like there's no like open well there's no open research things that i'm looking at that uh that are unsolved in mimblewimble um instead what i want to do is bring the script to script tech i want to make this real i want to make it robust i want to make it something that people can put like, a lot of value on and have very high assurance that something's not going to go wrong and they'll lose their money i want this to be something that the lightning network can use and to do that i can just focus on bitcoin and, well, let's um, let's take that for a second. So, uh, just because this answer leads to, I know that we're running really late, but like I have this other outstanding question. I think is is massively important to the ecosystem that we're in, and that the only strong, the strongest competitor, I would say, to in that it took an alternate philosophy and has had massive success uh, despite some of the failures in this in the space to Bitcoin is 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 Ethereum. 
Um, and so um, I was wondering if maybe you can give us some insight on your thoughts on the value of Ethereum in a world where scriptless scripts um, are powerful and uh, easily executed. Like, do you believe that this is something that would um, make Bitcoin more attractive uh, because it is a long tested secure blockchain system with a strong history of being a good store of value. Now it will be a good way to actually do some compute off chain um, and verify it on chain. Is this, is this going to be in any way, like do you still see value in what the Ethereum group's doing? So the, there are basically two things, arguably one thing that you can do with Ethereum's uh, scripting system that you can't do. I'm going to say two things that you can do in Ethereum that you cannot do in Bitcoin. One thing is that Ethereum's EVM uh, relaxes a bunch of the restrictions Bitcoin has on like the size of the numbers you can operate with. So there's like a whole bunch of like weird resource limits in Bitcoin script that don't really have a reason to be there. They're just like consensus for historical reasons they went up there and that, that kind of ties your hands. But in terms of pure functionality, the only thing that EVM can do that Bitcoin script cannot do in principle is Bitcoin script cannot look at the transaction you're creating. It can't reason about the destination of your of your money. It can't reason about the input amounts. It can't reason about the output amounts. Um, and so for a lot of more interesting contracts, you are unable to do this on Bitcoin, um, at least in the same way as you might do it on Ethereum without creating like giant trees of off-chain transactions and like trying to use those to, uh, and, and like signing individual transactions and trying to use those signatures to simulate control over yeah. your transaction outputs. So it might be good um, for like escrow, but not necessarily lending. Is that what, you, is that what I'm understanding based off what you said? No, I'm not going to commit to that. Although <laughs> okay, I, would, I, would, I would have to think, I would have to think harder um, about exactly where the limitations are. Um, but in general, and so scripts of scripts, um, potentially help a lot with this because script to scripts in general include all sorts of stuff. So I, I mentioned like revealing a secret to you by producing a signature. If I instead create like an alternate transaction or um, like there may be some very elaborate thing I could do for you and I could produce some, some witness or some output that I've done that and I could encrypt that and then I could provide to you a zero knowledge proof that the secret I'm revealing to you with my signature is the encryption key to a valid witness to this other alternate program. So I, I can do arbitrary, very general things with scriptless scripts. You can also do some things with scriptless scripts you cannot do on Bitcoin or Ethereum. Um, for example, and I don't, um, okay, I, I've already said too much, but um, here's an example that I want to give. So my friend Pedro uh, Marino Sanchez, who co-authored a paper on scriptless scripts where he formalized it and defined the security model and, and really like, he's a scriptless script guy. I, I wrote like the easy algebra. I said like you can add stuff and then it's encrypted. That's all I did and then he really like ran with it. Um, he's got a, a scheme that will let you do some other stuff but that we'll see in the next uh, uh, few months or, or years or whatever. Well, let you do for example a knot. Okay, what does that mean? I can say, so right now in Bitcoin, I can say you cannot take these coins unless you reveal a secret and the blockchain will require that you put the secret on the chain. What I can't do is say, you can take these coins, um, or sorry, if you reveal a secret, then I can take your coins. You can do something like that. That seems, that seems a, a fair bit harder to do this not. And the reason is that the blockchain um, can't really enforce the negation of something. 
inherently, right? Um, let me try to think of a, of a concrete example. Um, basically, if you can imagine having a coin where we want to spend it, where like I need to sign and Colin needs to not sign. I can imagine writing a script in Bitcoin that does that. And the thing is, it doesn't actually enforce that Colin doesn't sign. It just means that if he signs a transaction, I'm going to throw away his, his signature and then publish it to the chain. Right? So the chain can't actually enforce that that signature doesn't exist. Okay? Um, all it can do is enforce that the signature doesn't appear on the chain, which is much less useful. Um, so with scripts with scripts, you can actually enforce knots like this. Um, I can have Colin encrypt some data to me, to his signature, and then if he ever produces that signature, then I can just decrypt the data. And then maybe that data allows me to sign, to freeze another signature to like take his coins or something like that. So you do knots like this. Um, so Pedro is going to have some, some upcoming research describing how to do this and doing some other things that are just much more general and very exciting. Um, but I don't want to steal his thunder, so I'm not going. I'm just going to like vaguely hint that he's got cool stuff coming. We'll allow people uh, to discover that nice little tidbit of information naturally and not broadcast it too much. Yeah. that. Yeah. Um, well, he's so, welcome to come on the program and talk about it himself. No. It's cool. <laughs> um, but then, yes, and he should. Um, so, but other than that, my feeling on Ethereum more generally is that it is just a, a fractal of bad design choices. So the Ethereum scripting language is designed to be Turing complete, right? So there's another word for Turing complete that we use in computer science, which is undecidable. Ethereum scripting language is designed to be undecidable. And when you say it that way, it, it, even without knowing what undecidable means, um, it's clear that this is actually probably not a good thing. It's actually probably a very bad thing for smart contracts. And in fact, it is. What that means is that if it's impossible for me to write a program which, given some arbitrary uh, EVM script, will tell you what it does, will tell you how many resources it takes, will tell you what its runtime is, will guarantee you that it will do some arbitrary thing that I, I want to assure you of. It's basically impossible because what Turing completeness means is that when you try to do these kinds of general analysis, then you, uh, you run into kind of fundamental mathematical limitations. You run into the halting problem, yeah. basically. Yeah, we, we actually ran into a lot of, uh, we've had a lot of conversations mm -hmm. with people on formal verification. And basically, yeah. when anybody's ever trying to do formal verification on, on EVM, they have to actually select a subset of the language, uh, of the EVM bike, you know, the code, and say, this is this is the only stuff that will ever be formally verifiable. And if it has anything other than this, then you can't, you can't really prove it. Exactly so. right, yeah. And I actually, I have a project for Bitcoin that does this called Miniscript, which I don't have time. I'm just going to hint at that and just uh, Google it or, or find other podcasts or something. I don't have time to go into that. But basically the EVM design, uh, EVM was designed to, like basically to make formal verification impossible. And then even the languages that compile the EVM, like Solidity and Serpent, were based off of languages like JavaScript or Python that themselves are undecidable and which are written in this imperative like execute this, execute that, execute that kind of method that undermines the ability to do formal verification. Whereas what you as a user want is to say these coins cannot be moved except under these conditions is basically the way that you describe a smart contract in, in English. Um, what you actually implement on the blockchain in EVM, and even with Bitcoin script, although Bitcoin script has some limitations that prevent it, uh, that like has no unbounded loops and stuff. Um, what you're saying is like, dear Mr. EVM blind idiot Bob, please execute the following instructions. 
move this thing there, move that thing there, check this signature, interpret this as a Boolean, move that over there, blah, blah, blah. And your hope is that that sequence of blind, like mechanistic um, operations will somehow result in your coins only being moved under the conditions you want. And like, they're just fundamentally two completely different modes of thinking about programs. And Turing completeness makes it impossible to transfer between the two modes. Um, so that's, that's sort of the theoretical problem with EVM. But then there's a practical problem with EVM, which is that every single contract has its own data store. Every contract is a, un is a 256-bit hash of its program code. It has its own data store. Its data store is itself a hash table of, um, of data to, to mappings. So as a result, to execute an Ethereum smart contract as a validator, you need to do a whole ton of random access lookups in this hash table of hash tables of, of data. Um, and this is extremely expensive. It, it requires an enormous amount of space on disk. Um, if you maintain like a full T, like equivalent to TX index on Ethereum, it's like a terabyte or something. Um, it's incredibly expensive to verify. Um, and as a result, you actually can't really verify the Ethereum chain on commodity hardware. You need to buy a top-of-the-line computer, and you need to let it do nothing except verify the Ethereum chain. And if you do so, there's a good chance you're going to run into bugs in Geth, or uh, it's, it's usually Geth, usually Parity is a bit more reliable. Um, and then you file GitHub issues, and the people and, and the response is like, oh, I guess this broke. I guess nobody has tried to validate the chain recently. Um, and there's just a, a litany of GitHub issues to this effect because nobody's really validating the chain. And the standard advice, if your Geth node gets stuck, is to restart the node. And restarting the node means you contact the miners, you download a recent snapshot of the Ethereum state, and you just blindly trust that state and move forward. So as a consequence of these anti-scalability, anti-verification decisions that they've made, you have a blockchain that people can't verify. Uh, and what's even the point of that? So the archive node that you're referring to, the one terabyte plus node uh, yep. you're referring to, is keeping um, the state in memory at all times in history. The, the full node uh, keeps the current state in history and all transactions. So yeah, it's, 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 quite a, it's quite yeah, a bit yeah, of a difference in, in there. So mm -hmm. that is a fully verified, that's a fully verified node. It runs through all the, all the computation associated with the entire blockchain from the Genesis block. It's just not keeping it all in memory. And there is lookup yeah, there. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's, a very, that's a good distinction. I shouldn't have, have tried to, to uh, equivalent those. Um, so the, the correspondence between like an archival node in Ethereum is over a terabyte. In Bitcoin, that's probably 250, almost 300 gigabytes. Um, the equivalent of a full node in Ethereum where you only have the recent state, that I think is only a couple hundred gigs. It's about 120 to 200. Uh, 120 to 200, okay. And Parity, the I think, is Bitcoin, much lower. I don't know why. It's, it's the way they store it, in the, like the DB. Okay. Um, and then the equivalent on Bitcoin would be just the UTXO set, um, which is something like 30 or 40 gigs. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so th those are the correct comparisons. Absolutely, yeah. So it's not a it's not a terabyte versus like forty gigs or anything like that. Um, this terabyte is almost never needed, except for uh, um, except for like doing things like chain really, analysis. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's basically only needed for chain analysis. You don't need that to validate, um, and you actually don't even need it to bootstrap necessarily. You can just use the original blocks for that, and then let people people replay the whole state. Well, I think that's a, we, we could probably discuss the ins and outs, <laughs> poor design decisions and so on and so forth <laughs> ad yeah, nauseum. Yeah. Uh, but why don't we, we wrap it up work. there? And um, 
Uh, I will definitely be looking forward to inviting you back on to see some of these more um, things you've alluded to in, in the future or one of your coworkers in the process. Uh, to yep. wrap it up, um, how do people reach out, uh, learn more, um, discover what Blockstream's doing and all this cool stuff? So the easiest way to find me is on IRC, which I know is not very easy for most people, but my nick there is Andy Toshi. Um, ultimately, you can find me on GitHub as a Polstra and follow my development. Um, and you can also probably find a lot of my colleagues there on my GitHub repos. Um, you now, can... IRC is big. Are you talking about like Freenode Network or like where, where, yeah. where are you hanging out? Uh, it's basically all Freenode. Um, I was on a couple channels on OFTC, but I closed them because recently because they were too low volume. Mm -hmm. um, I am on the Mozilla. No, I'm not. So Mozilla is shutting down their IRC server for the Rust programming language. So I'm no longer on there. Um, you can find me on GitHub. You can email me, andrew at blockstream.com. Um, and then keep an eye on the Blockstream blog, uh, blockstream.com slash blog. Let me make sure that's the real URL. Um, and you can see some posts are tagged research. Those are the cool ones. Those are the ones that, yeah, research. Those are the ones that talk about what, uh, what I'm working on and what my colleagues uh, like Russell and Peter are working on as well. Um, and of course, even the non-research posts are pretty cool. Which um, ones are the cool ones? And also our work on Lightning. You can find that under research as well. So, outstanding. And cool. uh, for, yeah. for those that enjoy the show, uh, click like, subscribe, share with all your friends, share on Twitter. You can find me at Core Petty on Twitter, at Colin Couchet on Twitter, and the podcast at the uh, at Hashing It Out Pod. Uh, and go to the show, go to the uh, website, thebitcoinpodcast.com. You can find us inside there. Join the Slack, join the conversation. Find Andrew. Uh, thanks for coming on. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I definitely look forward to all of these all of these cool innovations and um, novel ways of doing things more efficiently and more complex at the same time. Andrew, thank yeah, you for your hard work too. You know, I mean, I know you put a lot into this, and you basically breathe life into this community, so I appreciate it. Cool. Thanks so much, and thank you guys as well. I had a lot of fun.